Hi, I'm Lauren Gilger, co-host of the show, one of KJZZ's original productions. It's a program with news and features from across Phoenix and the state. You can find much more at theshow.kjzz.org. Here's today's episode. Good morning. It's the show here on KJZZ 91.5. With Lauren Gilger in Phoenix, I'm Mark Brody. Coming up, why so many of us are so interested in our family histories. And our Saguaroland series continues with a look at the pros and cons of how social media has shined a spotlight on the Sonoran Desert. But first, it is time for the Friday Newscap and some voices from the news this week. If we have to go back to the Supreme Court, we will, because frankly... I think this Supreme Court will back the protection of the borders of the United States. Within 12 months, I was pulled over more than 10 times by law enforcement. And why I asked, why did you pull me over? They said, oh, you you don't belong here. You uh, are here illegally. It is high time we pass this and keep our guard where It should be unless the United States Congress declares war. This is a monumental step towards protecting our children, promoting a healthier future for Arizonans, and building an Arizona where every child has the chance to thrive. Many of my colleagues in the Senate have decided that they have no interest in actually securing the border. And what they're interested in doing is just talking about it and accusing each other for political purposes. As we know, in southern Arizona, that's not a solution. It's political malpractice. And with me to talk about a series of immigration-related bills advancing at the state capitol, a spat between two high-profile Arizona Republicans and more, are Marcus Delartino of First Strategic. Good morning, Marcus. Good morning. And Stacey Pearson of Lumen Strategies. Stacey, good morning to you. Hi. So let's start with neither of those stories, but something that we uh, heard about uh, toward the beginning of the week, which is that Congresswoman Debbie Lesko, who has announced that she is not running for re-election in Congress, will instead be running for the Maricopa County Board of Supervisors for the seat uh, that Clint Hick has said that he will not be running for re-election for. Marcus, was this a surprise that she's deciding to, to run again for specifically for the seat? I was not surprised, but I could see why other people would be surprised. I mean, I'd, I'd spoken to her not very long after she decided to, to not run for Congress. And the issue really is family. She's not being able to spend enough time with her family. Um, her mother is in her 90s. Um, she's got grandkids. Um, and, you know, from what I've seen, by the way, grandkids are the, about the best thing on the planet. I'm not <laughs> I don't have any personal knowledge of this yet, but this parenting thing's really a pain in the rear end. Uh, but I think the reward is grandparents. So um, I think this job uh, affords her that opportunity to go home every night, um, have weekends, have evenings uh, with her family um, and still be part of the political process. So it, it seems like a perfect fit. Does she automatically become the front runner in that primary? I would say so. I mean, she certainly got the ability to raise money. We know that. Um, and it's a safe Republican district. Um, she's well known in that community, Sun City, Sun City West. Um, and so I, it, right now, where the race lands, I think you've got to say she's the presumptive nominee. Yeah, Stacey, how do you see this primary shaping up now that she is in it? I think it's terrifying, to be perfectly honest. <laughs> I think she certainly is the front runner for that seat. And to Marcus's point, she can fundraise, but she is an election-denying lunatic, and she is going to be in charge of certifying elections. We've seen what happened with Clint Hickman, with other supervisors who 
who it took a toll on their life, on, on their health, uh, to defend against the big lie. And she was part of that. And that's something we all should be worried about. Yeah, Marcus, what do you make of that? Because she was part of the the group in the House that voted to not accept Arizona's results and some others. Is that problematic, potentially, to have somebody like that in a position where they are in charge of, of certifying the results? I, I don't think so. I mean, my experience with her is she's far more rational than sort of some people would, would like to describe her. Um, and two, I have a sneaking suspicion that – and I know this is very contrarian. I don't think this is going to be a close election. I think we're going to see blowouts across the board. Hmm. Um, and I think if that are, is the case, there's going to be less talking about elections and more talking about messaging. Now, of course, she wouldn't be in a position to do anything about this until the 2026 election. But Stacey, you you looked a little bit skeptical. If I can read your facial expressions, <laughs> you looked a little bit skeptical when Marcus was talking there. Look, I, I certainly hope he's right. I, I hope a large number of Republicans are looking back on their behavior in 2020 and have regret. I, I don't think that's the case. And certainly um, the the public comments from Carrie Lake and others and Trump currently make a tell a different story. But I, I hope she's moderating. I hope she's looking back and saying that was nuts and wrong and shouldn't happen again. All right. So, Marcus, uh, Stacey brought up Carrie Lake. So let's let's talk about Carrie Lake and Meghan McCain, because it seems as though they're not going to be uh, sending each other holiday cards this year. Pretty big, uh, big spat. I, maybe that's a nice way to say it. I don't know. But, uh, you know, Carrie Lake, of course, uh, during her gubernatorial campaign, had some pretty not nice things to say about, quote unquote, McCain Republicans, uh, talking about driving a stake through the heart of the McCain machine and, and other things. And now it seems like she is trying to make peace with Meghan McCain, who is having none of it. Yeah, I think that people have forgotten some of the more vicious attacks that took place. I've noticed lately the media wants to talk about, you know, if you're with McCain, get out of the room. Um, but they've conveniently forgot about the very personal attacks on Cindy, uh, on John and and certainly the kids. So um, it's all understandable from that context if you remember some of those things that were said. Um, I think the strategy is interesting. I'm not too sure how it's going to play out. And what I mean by that is clearly there is a concerted effort uh, from the late campaign to go after those McCain people and try and court them back into the into the fold. Um, that is a really tall mountain to climb, I guess I would say. Um, I, from what I've seen recently, they're, they're not believing that it was a joke, um, as has been described. The McCain folks are not believing that Lake's comments were a joke. Right. OK. But um, let's just say for argument's sake, you pick up some of them, maybe half of them. Um, at the same time, you're going to be losing a segment of your base that you spent months courting um, bashing John McCain. And now you're saying, oh, no, John's a hero or we like the McCains or whatever it very well may be. So you're going to lose 10 percent of that uh Contingency. So at the end of the day, I haven't somebody's going to have to describe to me what the strategy is to get to a net win here. <laughs> Stacy, is this the proverbial sort of pulling the bedsheet where if you go, you know, if you try to tug on one side to get some of those McCain voters, you're, you are losing the base. Like, do, does the base care if she, if Lake is going after the McCain folks, if they can be convinced, well, this is what she needs to do to win? Uh, that's the question, right? It, it, and truthfully, we're so far away from the election. Normal folks are not paying that close of attention. And they certainly um, are not in the weeds 
on whether or not the McCain family and the late campaign have made up. Um, <clears throat> I think it's very clear they're not going to. And so it, to Marcus's point, there really has not been a net change there. I just don't understand Lake's, Lake's attempt to do the same thing over and over again. I mean, it's the definition of insanity, right? She continues to try to court the moderates who tell her to go pound sand. And it's a, it's a strange approach. Well, it's interesting. We also saw a, a poll this week uh, from Mike Noble showing that in a head-to-head matchup, uh, Congressman Ruben Gallego has about a 10-point lead over Kerry Lake. If uh, Senator Kirsten Cinema enters, the race becomes much closer. Uh, Gallego uh, is basically up by three points over Lake, with Cinema taking almost a quarter, about 23 percent of the vote. Stacey, what do you make of that? I mean, we've been talking for a long time about how – Senator Sinema getting into the race could shake things up. This potentially provides a pretty interesting data point. It was a really interesting data point. And I dug around a bit in the crosstabs, too. And where Sinema really gained ground from both candidates is in the suburbs, Mm. in metropolitan suburbs. And where those voters go, so goes the state. And so it's very, very interesting um, how close that narrows. And it also, I think, is telling that Lake's not picking up new voters from her gubernatorial loss. And so she's going to have a very difficult road to Congress. I We could spend the rest of the show talking about not only this poll, but the Emerson poll that came out at the same time, which basically statistically sort of reflect closely, I will say, to one another. Um, And I will tell you, both of them used registered voters instead of likely voters, Mm -hmm. which tells me some of these numbers are a lot tighter um, that are reflected in there. Um, What I think most political prognosticators prognosticators, (laughs) prognosticators (laughs) uh, were assuming is that Sinema was pulling uh, either from Rubin, uh, and we know Rubin thought that, or or from Lake. And – you know, looking at the Emerson poll, I can make the argument she was pulling evenly from both, yeah. mm-hmm. uh, which I th- think was sort of interesting. Rubin is up with women uh, si- significantly and put that in the context of he's running against two women. So that's an interesting data point uh, from that race. But all of this said, um, you know, this is all going to come down to turnout. Uh, and so, you know, if we continue, what we do know from the poll is immigration is the number one issue in Arizona. Trump's up by three. Uh, if this continues the way we think it is, um, you know, Republicans are going to turn out. Democrats m- are not all that excited about Biden being the nominee. Um, and that could certainly have some tailwind effect for, for Lake and she could pull this out. But it leaves out my conspiracy that Joe Biden will eventually won't be the nominee. <laughs> We're going to have a floor fight at the Democratic convention. America is going to be glued to the TV for four days. And it will be Gavin Newsom out of California. Wow. All right. Well, so since we're making bold, totally conspiracy, we're talking bold prognostications here. I know I ask you guys this every time you're here, but until we have an answer, I have to keep asking. Stacey, do you think cinema runs? She certainly has time to get in. The the stories that we're reading about how time is running out are absolutely dead wrong. She can collect signatures online that are immediately verified. And I think with a single e-blast and looking at those poll numbers, she can collect 42,000 signatures in a couple of days. Mm. And so she has all of this month, what's left of February, and all of March to get 42,000 people to click a link. So she certainly has time to get in. 
Do you think she runs, Marcus? I am certainly less. I, you know, you asked me, you know, three weeks ago, I was said, oh, yeah, she's definitely in. Uh, you know, this week, my tide is starting to turn and I'm at huh. about a 50-50. We're getting we are getting tight on time. All right. That is Marcus Tellertino. I'm also joined by Stacey Pearson. I'm Mark Brody in Phoenix. The Friday Newscap continues in just a moment. Good morning. It's the Friday Newscap here on KJZZ 91.5. I'm Mark Brody. My guests this week are Stacey Pearson of Lumen Strategies and Marcus Dellartino of First Strategic. Stacey, we saw a number of immigration-related bills going through the state legislature this week. There was a measure to send to the voters basically dealing with E-Verify and trying to make sure that that workers are allowed to be working, that they're in the country legally. There's a a bill uh, allowing the state to arrest people here illegally. Some folks are calling this uh, SB 1070 version 2.0. I'm curious what you make of the fact that we are seeing all of these bills. Now, Marcus mentioned that, you know, immigration is a top issue for a lot of voters. I mean, is that really what this is about? I think there it's twofold, right? It, it is the horrifying scenes were shown at of lines of humans trying to come to the United States, right? It's there's a humanitarian crisis. And then second to that, folks are are just frustrated with the lack of action by the federal government. Um, and it, it certainly if these if any of these are referred to the ballot, um, which certainly has been discussed, I think it's um, it, it could be an approach to to get Republican voters out and mitigate some of the um, expected impact that the abortion measure is going to have. So, Marcus, forgive me for asking a cynical question about politics. <laughs> However, How much of this is about trying to actually deal with the situation at the border and how much of it is about trying to rally the base and and maybe get particular voters to the polls? You know, I'd probably got to say 50-50 because both are, you know, huge reasons why they're going to appear on the ballot. Um, And, you know, I agree with Stacey. The voters are – you know they're frustrated. Look at the polls. Um, It's overwhelmingly the number one issue and rightfully so. Um, It's a federal issue and as I like to say, look – I'm pretty fiscally conservative. If the state of Arizona is having to pay for some of these functions, it means I'm getting double taxed because I paid that in my federal tax for the federal government to take care of that problem. They're not doing it. Um, And so, uh, you know, it gets extremely frustrating. Uh, But it is it will turn out Republicans. There is no doubt. Governor Hobbs has said she would veto the bill that that some are calling the son of SB 1070 or 1072.0. It's hard. It's I guess it's kind of hard to see the the policy perspective of pursuing that. Right. Because if the governor has said she's going to veto it and the legislature continues to to vote on it and, and debate it, it almost seems like it's just kind of a symbolic thing. Yeah, I think that's that's partially true. Although I've got to tell you, I hear the son of 1070 on about every bill every year. It's kind of like when we went through this, this is alt fuels. This is the next alt fuels. Yeah. And then 1070 came. Now everything's 1070. Um, and I think the challenge is to frankly look at it through a lens that uh, is not 1070 and say, OK, what actually does this bill factually do? Um, but, yeah, you know, to your point, the bill is going to get vetoed, but Republicans are going to be able to say to their base in these overwhelmingly Republican districts, I tried to do something. Yeah. So, Stacey, is there something that the state legally can do? 
And something that Republicans and Democrats could agree is a good idea to do relative to immigration. I think that question is best for Senator Cinema, <laughs> And that answer appears to be a hard no. Um, on, on the state, the governor's gone as far as she could in, in deploying the National Guard, encouraging the federal government to reopen Lukeville during that debacle, um, certainly doing what she can to move immigrants safely from point A to point B, not dropping them off in the middle of the desert or mm-hmm. the cities or, you know, Bisbee, Arizona. Um, so certainly the governor's done everything she can. Um, and it is, to Marcus's point, I completely agree on the taxes. This is the federal government's job. It, it has to get taken care of. And yet, and yet yeah, here we are. as we heard from Senator Sinema mm-hmm. at the top of the show, it's not. Yep. At, least, at least not on the federal level and seemingly not on the state level either because, you know, the legislature is passing some bills that the governor has said she'll veto, maybe getting something to the ballot and, you know, we'll see what the voters do with it. Yeah. And look, federal, I, I'm in full disclosure, I'm married to a cop. Local police do not want to enforce federal immigration. They have their hands full. They, they have all of the work that needs to be done and more. They're trouble, they have trouble recruiting, retaining. Um, so certainly this this should not be the job of our local governments. And it should absolutely be um, the function of the federals. Marcus, in the early part of the 2000s, we saw a lot of voter-approved initiatives related to immigration, related to immigrants going to the going to the ballot, and almost all of them, I'm trying to think of one that didn't pass and none are coming to mind, and many of them passed with pretty overwhelming support. Are we in the same kind of climate now where if the uh, E-Verify measure goes to the ballot, does it, do you think it wins? Uh, no, your climate's a lot more fierce than it was in 2000. <laughs> it's going to, it is going to sail through. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, you know, the argument uh, is going to be, look, E-Verify is an existing program. Yeah. We're just expanding it. And I think actually I think a lot of people forgot about E-Verify, but you're supposed to be doing it, people. Um, and so that's going to be the argument moving forward. All right. So state lawmakers also are advancing a bill that would basically uh, require Congress to declare war before the Arizona National Guard can be sent overseas. Uh, senators heard testimony from the head of the Arizona National Guard basically saying, if you do this, we are going to lose all kinds of equipment and funding. Didn't seem to d- deter the Senate, Marcus. No, I mean, they, they've kind of got it their heads, you know, stuck on this one on where they want to go. And it's I understand their point. I certainly do. Um, However, it's a lot more complicated than it looks on uh, paper. It's not this is not a Twitter argument, as they say. (laughs) Um, And so it's tied to millions and millions of dollars in equipment that we're using. I mean, if you see a Black Hawk helicopter flying over Phoenix, that's what's going on here. Um, and so I suspect at the end of the day, this one's going to get bogged down in a little bit more of those details. Yeah, Stacey, do you see this as one that maybe doesn't quite make it to the governor, basically given the concerns of all the, the funding loss and equipment loss? Exactly. I, I don't think I, th- I hope this dies on the vine quickly. Um, it's just absurd. And, and there are so many issues that are outstanding that need to be addressed. Just get back to work, <laughs> please. <laughs> Well, and I think it, to put it in context for some of your your listeners, um, you know, remember we had a lot of guardsmen overseas that were hurt or injured. Right, or, the, the ones in, in Jordan not right. that long mm-hmm. ago. Um, and I think that the some of the re- 
Republicans' point is that we'd like to have a say on whether it was worth it to send those boys over there or not. Is it also in relation we've seen, especially on the Republican side, diminished support, for example, for sending aid and equipment to places like Ukraine? Like, is this an extension of that or is this a separate issue, Marcus? No, it's all revolves around this huge pivot within the Republican Party of more of an isolationist form of national policy. Um, which, again, is about another hour-long show. <laughs> yeah. uh, but the, but it also highlights there is a division within the Republican Party on that issue. You've got the old Ronald Reagan Republicans who are saying, you know, you got to hold the line on communism. And, you know, if you let Putin into uh, uh, Ukraine. Ukraine, he's just going to keep marching. Um, and you've got a faction of the Republicans that say, we're, stop, we're done fighting everybody's war. Um, let's get out. Let's save some money and save some lives. Stacey, it is kind of an interesting position for Democrats to be in in terms of uh, they're not not promoting war for sure, but saying, look, we need to send aid to places like Israel, like Ukraine, like Taiwan to prepare for the possibility in that case of of military conflict. What I think gets disconnected in that argument um, is that those are working class jobs. And we say aid, it's not in most cases, a big bag of cash, although certainly that's part of it. <laughs> um, it's also equipment, supplies, manufacturing. It is airplanes. Yeah. It, there are helicopters. There are pilots that are going over, American pilots. Just the job loss alone on an isolationist approach when we supply the world's munitions um, it is terrifying. And those would be working class jobs that are in large part held by Democrats. All right. So, guys, we have about 30 seconds left. Spring training getting underway. Stacey, will the Diamondbacks make it back to the World Series? I hope so. That's not a yes or no? I think they will not. OK. Is it because of Shohei Otani? Yes. OK. Marcus, do they make it back? Oh, yeah. There's... Despite Shohei? Oh, yeah. All right. Um I just the energy with those boys is uh, pretty electric, so I'm excited to see. All them. right, snakes alive! That is Marcus Delartino and Stacey Pearson. Thanks, guys, for coming in. I really appreciate it. Thanks. You got it. Good morning. It's the show on KJZZ ninety one point five. I'm Mark Brody. And I'm Lauren Gilger. And now it's time for the next edition of our series, Sawaroland. Sun and sand, sagebrush and tumbleweed, rolling mountains and giant cactus. From our armchair seat in the sky, we see Arizona's famous Valley of the Sun at Phoenix. Camelback Mountain is outlined on the horizon. Caroline Tracy loves the Sonoran Desert. She's based in Tucson and has basically devoted her career to covering it as a journalist for publications like High Country News. But her training is as a geographer. That taught her to think about space in a critical way. And she's watched as Instagram and other platforms have turned a spotlight on the desert in ways she finds both refreshing and troubling. What do we do when people love our desert too much? I spoke with her more about it. I grew up with a love of big open spaces, but I think that, you know, as I've gotten older, I've developed not just a love of, you know, big sky and everything, but uh, a love of the details of the ecosystem. So the plants and the insects and the different adaptations and the biodiversity and how much that enriches one's sort of vision of the world. Yeah, that's really interesting. So 
I think for a long time, the image maybe in pop culture and maybe in movies and films in American history, this idea of the desert was sort of like a wasteland, right? Like, I think when I went to college in New York, what, 15, 20 years ago, like, everyone assumed when I said I was from Arizona that it was like Sahara. It's like it was like, it was like rolling hills of sand, right? But I think that's really changed. Have you kind of watched that shift happen? Absolutely. I think I think growing up in Denver, I probably had a little bit of that <laughs> attitude about Arizona, even though we're basically right next door. But I know that there was a very much kind of like a hinterland mentality to the West and the Southwest for mm-hmm. a long time. But I definitely think that especially with the rise of Instagram and the, the way that the images circulate now, I think it's very different. Um, and people have a lot more interest, uh, you know, for better or for worse in, mm-hmm. in the region. Yeah. And we'll get to the better and the worse. But I mean, I think it's interesting and in it, it, just to begin with, right, like that, I think it, for, for a while it was like the trend was put a bird on it. Now it's like put a cactus on it. Like it's, uh-huh. it's, it's everywhere. You know, people are really interested in this idea. What do you think it is about the desert, especially the way it's being portrayed now online that people are drawn to? One thing that comes to mind is an article that my friend uh, Julia Sizek, who's an anthropologist of the Southeastern California desert, wrote um, where she looked at the history of all the music videos that featured Joshua trees. Mm. And it's like this long and continuous history of pop music really featuring this one specific landscape in California. And I feel like it's, it's back to that circulation of images um, that happens through social media, but predates it. There's this sort of attachment of coolness to the desert that uh, probably used to happen mostly through music videos and now is mainly happening through Instagram. Yeah, absolutely. So there are, as you said, good things and bad things about this popularity, this trendiness, right? Um, Let's talk a little bit about the concerns that this brings up for you. You are a geographer. You've really studied the region in like an ecological sense. It sounds like you know it really well. What are the things that are top of mind when I ask about concerns? You know, one thing that is on a lot of people's minds right now is the energy transition. And in the desert, that brings up two big things. So there's one, there's the actual impact of renewable energy development um, in the form of solar and wind farms and the very real impact that that's having around the desert um, region. And then secondly, there's the towns that have historically had a resource extraction economy of gas or coal or oil sort of what economy are they going to transition to? And often the solution is is assumed to be tourism or that's the best solution on the table, right? Mm-hmm. And so we've ended up in a situation where like the economy of the desert right now is on one hand resource development and on the other hand tourism. And both of those are very intensive industries. So on some level, I'm like, it would be better if everyone just thought it was a wasteland and <laughs> left it alone. Not that when people thought it was a wasteland, it was so they could justify like dropping bombs and stuff. It's not as though it was just left alone when it was a wasteland. Yeah. But I do think that there's there's an intensity to the interest in the desert that ends up having a very physical impact, a very material. Right. So there's like the the one level, like the tourism impact. But then there's also just the the massive urban sprawl. Like what does it do when millions of people move to a place? Absolutely. The kind of amenity migration or uh 
permanent tourism or sort of those are terms that geographers use to describe that kind of urban sprawl in, mm-hmm. in unexpected places that aren't necessarily next to cities. Obviously, Phoenix is a big city. There's a mixture of both. There's both sort of just regular urban growth and there's kind of amenity migration or retiree migration, that kind of thing. Yeah. So, I mean, are there ways that we can do that well, I guess? Like, are there ways in which we can balance the the draw, the economic boost that might give people in communities around the Sonoran Desert, but also like the the real risks in that for this place that we love, for the land that we all say we love and, and part of the reason so many of us came here. Yeah, I mean, so one factor the desert has that can work in its favor is that it is mainly public land, which is a form of protection of the land. And I think that's partially why it's developed such popularity, mm. which is that if you compare it to, you know, one region that comes to mind just because it's also the border is South Texas is this like thorn scrub region. And it's an absolutely a biodiversity hotspot, but there's about 3% of it left intact. And now mm. that's exactly where they're going to build border wall. So it's like, because there's no protected federal land, that landscape actually has basically become treated as a wasteland. Whereas here, we're very lucky in Arizona, we have tons of uh, state and federal land that's that's protected from certain things. Obviously, now we're seeing new resource development on those lands. Um, and there are impacts of tourism on those lands. But we're, we're pretty fortunate that the desert does have that federal and state protections. And I think that the other really promising thing I'm seeing in Arizona right now are the citizen-led active management areas. Um, so taking advantage of the provisions that are in the state's groundwater uh, legislation and uh, getting on the ballot these groundwater protection areas. I think that that's really promising because it's a way of people who live here themselves saying we need to figure out a way to do this more sustainably. So when you look at the sort of trendiness of it and the kind of Instagram influencer side of that, which is sometimes tourism based, sometimes, you know, lifestyle based, but there's a big draw for that, especially online right now, and probably is at least part of the reason some people come here. Is there sort of a next step that we should all be thinking about or we should be holding people to, especially the ones who are sort of benefiting from this trend? It's a a really challenging question because on some level, I'm sucked in I mean, I'm not an influencer, but I do use Instagram and I do know that I'm persuaded by the way that images circulate and I see that they they have real importance and I participate in circulating mm-hmm. them, right? So I think many of us who, who use social media have gotten very used to that as just like a daily habitual activity um, and we kind of have to like recalibrate to how much impact it has on the ground. In terms of a next step from like desert influencers, I guess, you know, I would love to see a bit more kind of consciousness on the part of influencers. I think that influencers, you know, become very good at selling a high consumptive lifestyle, even the kind of eco influencers, I Mm -hmm. feel. It's all about brand partnerships and lifestyle and all those things entail a lot of consumption. There are, it sounds like, things you can do to live here well and to appreciate the Sonoran Desert and to benefit from the trend, right? Like there can be a (laughs) win-win. Yeah, I think that there are so many things to learn about the desert and there's so much to teach others about the desert. And so I think there would be ways to use one's platform to be like, here's the Latin name of each plant in this image frame (laughs) rather than like buy this cool sprinter, you know? (laughs) Not a bad idea. All right. (laughs) 
We will leave it there. That is Caroline Tracy, a journalist and geographer based in Tucson, talking to us more about the Sonoran Desert. Caroline, thank you so much for coming on. Thanks for giving us some insight here. I appreciate it very much. Thanks so much for having me. Good morning. It's the show on KJZZ 91.5. In Phoenix, I'm Lauren Gilger. And I'm Mark Brody. Lots of us try to find out about our family histories, who our ancestors were and what their lives were like. And tomorrow, there's a virtual event aimed at people interested in just that. My next guest will be taking part in the fourth annual Arizona Genealogy Day, but he also runs separate workshops on family histories. Dwayne Rowan is a former English professor and dean at ASU. Since he retired in 2022, he says he's been doing a lot of work in this area. He joins me to talk about this. And Dwayne, people seem really interested in their family histories. Do you feel people are maybe more interested in this now than they have been in the past? Or maybe are there just more tools to help us find out about it now? I think there are a number of things. One, there are a lot more tools. When I started doing this work when I was a teenager, I had to go to the – uh, cemeteries. I had to go to the libraries. I had to go to the historical societies. I had to go to the courthouses. Now, almost everything that you need is online, yeah. so you never have to leave your house. The other thing that shows like Finding Your Roots on PBS has done a lot to generate interest in family history, and Arizona is a hotbed of family history uh, for all sorts of reasons. And uh, you know that's why uh, we're having the Arizona Genealogy Day coming up on uh, February 24th, a Saturday, um, and it's it's going to be an exciting lineup of uh, people that day, and I, I hope a lot of people are able to uh, tune in on Zoom. Why is Arizona such a hotbed for this? Well, uh, there are a lot of uh, retired people in Arizona, and unlike me who started when I was a teenager, most people get interested in family history when they retire. Okay. One, because they've got more time. Uh, to do this work, and uh, among other things, the more time makes them wondering where did I, where did I come from. So, how do you try to help people go from maybe what they would get from something like uh, Ancestry dot com or Twenty Three and Me, where you get sort of the, the names of people and maybe where they lived and how old they they lived to be? Yeah. How do you go from sort of the facts to the stories behind those people? So all sorts of things, all sorts of ways. One of the things that I I have, one of my workshops is on keeping a journal. That is, we should be sharing the stories about our own lives so that we can pass them down to descendants. One of my workshop focuses on how to do the research about what it was like where your ancestors live at that time and place. You can fill in some of the gaps. And I'm going to give you a good example of that. I have in front of me uh, right now a letter written in Norwegian from 1866 to my great-grandfather, great-grandpa Christian Christensen Rowan, uh, from his uncle, Olus Bronis. And there was one line in this letter that said, Olus, who is his cousin, Olus went to war as soon as it broke out, and when he served his time nearly out with only five months left, he was taken prisoner and died in prison. Well, that was the U.S. Civil War, of course. And uh, uh, it didn't take me more than an hour's research to discover that Olis was captured at the Battle of Chickamauga in um, September of 1863, went to Andersonville prison camp where he died. Hmm. Like so many people who went to Andersonville, died from waterborne diseases most likely. Now, you want to know what life was like at Andersonville? Do a Google search. You will find hundreds of thousands of sites that will give you great details about what daily life was like, including the images of what daily life was like. And so 
you know, we, we all sorts of things like this letter makes us curious about the lives of our ancestors. Yeah. And so, um, so I uh, help people do the research, but then also I have all of these workshops, and I'll do one of them at Arizona Genealogy Day along with the other speakers. Uh, and mine is the workshop on how to fill in the gaps when you don't have the stories, how to draw on the history of that location at that time to find out what it was like to farm in Norway in the 1850s, for example, or what it was like to be a shoemaker in Berlin in the 1830s, something like that. So it might not be specifically your ancestor story, but is it is the story that your ancestor yeah. probably would have been a part of. Part of, right, exactly. Uh, and um, and then so that, you know, this is the reason why I, I, I focus so much on getting people to tell their own stories because our ancestors didn't have the opportunity to do that. We do. So among other things, my wife and I, since our first child was born in 18, 18, 1978, have kept a daily journal oh on my our gosh. family. We just passed 21,000 pages of journal wow. entries in our family. And those journal entries have things such as uh, – I'm just going to pick a thing at random. Uh, for his first time today, Nick, our oldest, oldest child, Nick was able to reach light switches. This was when he was just about two years old with the use of a stool. Uh, that means that he can reach 48 inches high. Uh, so little details like that. Yeah. People say, well, are little details like that interesting? Well, I like to put it this way. If you could find, um, uh, like in our journal, we'll talk about what we had for dinner sometimes. If you could find a journal from an ancestor from 400 years ago, might you be interested in what they had for dinner that night? It's so interesting because I think we often look at our our – family history and think about what is in the past, what have people left for us, without thinking about maybe what can we leave for the people who follow us. Yeah, Jonas Salk, who developed a the polio, polio vaccine. vaccine, yes, uh, he has a quotation that says, that says, are we being good ancestors? And being a good ancestor means all sorts of things, telling stories to leave for our descendants, uh, leaving a legacy. One of my workshops is what is the legacy that you're leaving? When you're doing your journal, let's say, for, for your kids, how do you, A, decide what detail is important? Because there are a million things every day, I'm sure, that you could put in there. Yeah. And B, like, frankly, how do you find the time to do it every day? So every day since October of 1978, crawl into bed, write in the journal. And that's the perfect time to do it because the day is still fresh in, fresh in your mind as opposed to waiting until tomorrow when some of it will be gone forever. Um, and so we, we do it that way. It's 15 to 20 minutes, crawl into bed. Um, and, uh, you know, you think about what are the moments in life? You know, these days uh, I spend a lot of time, I'm fortunate enough to spend a lot of time with my teenage grandsons. And we tease each other. We joke a lot. Uh, they do funny things. Uh, uh, and so I talk about those things. So, I, you know, those things help people to understand what, our relation, my relationship is like with my grandchildren, for example, and I think it's important for people to know because that's one of the things that, that we all think about. What was it like uh, from our great, 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 great grandparents and their children yeah. or their parents? And so we're telling those stories. Why is it so important? And I guess why do many of us feel it is so important to understand where we came from and understand the lives of the people in our family who came before us. I, there's a you know I read some of the psychology on all of this stuff, and one thing uh, is that the more we understand the stories of generations from the past, 
and um, and connect with generations to uh, the future. The stronger bonds are developed in the family. There's more um, sense of belonging uh, that's important for all human beings. Um, and you know, if, if human beings are curious, and you can't be. Uh, it's impossible, I think, to not be curious about where we came from. All right. Fair enough. Dwayne Rowan, thank you so much for coming in. I appreciate it. Thanks, Mark. I appreciate it, too. That's it for this episode of the show's podcast. To find out more about the stories from today or other episodes, you can visit theshow.kjzz.org. And you can subscribe to KJZZ's The Show on your favorite podcasting site. I'm Lauren Gilger for Mark Brody. Thanks for listening today.